Good afternoon, everyone. How are we doing today? Um, my name is Greg Wilhelm. I'm the executive director of City Lit Project. This is the 11th annual City Lit Festival at the beautiful Pratt Library. Um, just a few quick uh, announcements. If you were around this morning, you, you heard me uh, give uh, some thanks to some very important women in not only my life, but uh, in the life of this festival. Uh, of course, Dr. Carla Hayden, the CEO of Enoch Pratt Free Library, who um, for some reason uh, has turned over essentially the keys to this beautiful uh, Baltimore historic landmark to uh, this small nonprofit arts organization, City Lit, to uh, curate and stage this festi festival for 11 years straight. And then there was a little concern about whether we were going to be able to do this again next year because we all know that the Pratt is going under renovations. So if you were downstairs, very good. It definitely does need renovations. Um, but you, if you were downstairs this morning, you might have also heard that um, Dr. Hayden stepped in the front of the mic while I was speaking and, uh, and wielded her awesome power and said, no, the City Lit Festival will be here this time next year uh, at, the, at the Pratt Library. So renovations will not um, impinge on the, on the 12th annual festival. Uh, and I also must thank uh, Judy Cooper. I just saw, where is Judy? And sitting in the back. So Judy Cooper is uh, the director of uh, programs and publications for the Pratt. And uh, it's, it's usually a, a few good weeks after this day-long festival that we decompress and then start thinking about the next year. And she and I sort of curate the entire day's events. Uh, and I've been doing this, you know, we've been doing this together for 11 years, uh, 11 times. Um, so I wanted to thank Judy Cooper. Um, this is also, 2014 is the 10th anniversary of City Lit Project, the organization. So we are spending the entire year holding special events um, to commemorate that, that uh, occasion. Uh, I see a couple City Lit board members. Uh, if you could stand and, and make yourself known. Uh, City Lit's run by a great um, energetic and creative board of directors who volunteer and help make these programs happen, not only financially, but literally. Oh, there's uh, Lalita, another board member, um, to, to, to really pull off uh, these, these great uh, uh, festivals and everything that City Lit does. And then uh, lastly, what uh, the person in this room who most makes both City Lit Project and City Lit Festival possible is my mom, Joan Wilhelm. This is her. Um, This is her uh, 81st birthday today, so happy birthday, Mom. <laughs> uh, the cool thing about being uh, an arts organization uh, on the East Coast is that you can avail yourself to people from D.C. to Boston, and they can travel pretty easily to Baltimore to share their talents and insights with us. The bad thing about that is that they're often beholden to said trains and planes and automobiles. And uh, when James uh, got up today, I guess in Trenton or outside of Princeton, somewhere in New Jersey, he realized that the, uh, his train that was scheduled to bring him to Baltimore was going to be an hour late. And there was no way in hell he was going to make it for 3 o'clock. So what did he do? He got in his car and drove down 95. <laughs> to, to be with us today. So thanks so much, James. Uh, you know, in addition to being the 2013 National Book Award winner for fiction, he, he's a hell of a guy. <laughs>
So I'm going to introduce my friend Tom Hall from WYPR. He's the arts and culture editor for uh, Maryland Morning with Sheila Cass. <laughs> and uh, most uh, most City Lit festivals and most Baltimore book festivals, Tom agrees to share his time and expertise, and most importantly, his passion <coughs> for literature with us. Uh, and he and James known each other for a while. Um, if you heard uh, the show Friday, yesterday morning, it was a great interview that Tom conducted with James. And so he's going to continue that excellent. Uh, uh, discussion with James this morning, or this afternoon rather, and um, and then James will read some select passages from the book, and then perhaps most importantly, after all this is said and done, we're going to escort James downstairs to the Barnes and Noble area where he will be glad to continue conversations with each and every one of you while signing copies of his fantastic book. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Tom Hall and James McBride. Thanks, Greg, and uh, happy birthday, Greg's mom. Shall we do this right? Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Greg's mom. Happy birthday to you. Very good. Okay. And uh, thanks to Greg, uh, not just for running the City Lit Festival uh, so beautifully, but for having the City Lit Project do so many great things for literature in Baltimore, man. You really do great stuff. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. And thank you, James, for coming in the building and two minutes later coming on the stage and uh, talking about this book. How many of you have had the pleasure of reading this phenomenal, phenomenal book? Yeah, great. Well, the rest of you will, will uh, have that pleasure soon, but this is really a tremendous, tremendous achievement. It's just terrific. Thank you so much. Well, thanks, man. I mean, uh, keep going. You know. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah. John Brown, um, uh, when we talked on the radio uh, yesterday, you talked about uh, wanting to elevate John Brown uh, into the um, into more of a presence in American history, American mythology. What do you mean by that? What were you hoping to achieve? Well, you know, I grew up um, watching the movies like everybody else, you know, and Jesse James and the Wild West and all the, the mythical characters, you know, characters, Billy the Kid and, uh, you know, Wyatt Earp and all of these guys were, were heroes of mine. I mean, I didn't know that much about Harriet Tubman. Uh, I didn't know anything about John Brown. <clears throat> and I didn't know how slavery had impacted the West. Slavery impacted everything. Um, but, you know, the, the myth makers in Hollywood are not, you know, at least then weren't really interested in that part of the story. So when I came upon John Brown's story, I just said, this is so good, you know. I love Westerns. Um, and I had no idea that African Americans, I knew Indians were kind of written out of the Western mythology. And one of, I'm sad, really, that I did not manage to include more of the red man in the book, um, other than Ottawa Jones, who was an Indian who fought with John Brown for, for a period. Pardon me? That's another book? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but in any case, um, um, I, you know, I just, I, he was just such a great character. And he was so funny, you know? He yeah. was like, he was such a religious fanatic. That I thought a book of, of caricature about him would just be, you know, if I could make it funny, it would it would be good because people would read it and then they could go to real history books and find out what 
really oh eight, about eighty percent of that book is is, is accurate you mm -hmm. know it really happened but um you know people are really interested in the history there's several i mean there's probably forty books written about John Brown yeah and you write fiction and nonfiction i mean you're you're trained as a journalist <laughs> and stuff but you you never thought about writing a nonfiction account of John Brown it was always no no I mean first of all too many good books have been Stephen wrote Stephen Oates's book and W. E. B. Du Bois's book on John Brown are my personal favorites, but um, that's been done already. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's like it's like Coltrane playing, you know, Naima. I mean, why why redo that? Mm -hmm. You know, or, or you know, or Beethoven writing, you know, why redo that? Yeah. It's been done. Try to find a different road. And and I didn't want to write a serious book because I don't really like serious books about that kind of stuff. <laughs> you know, I know I know what happens. The black guy gets shot at the beginning. I, mean, I don't want to know. You yeah. know, right, right. I wanted something that's going to get deeper and tell me. You know, so. Well, this book is really funny. Um, and you and it's assiduously researched. I mean, you clearly have read a lot about the subject, and um, and there are a number of historical characters that make appearances uh, in the book. I wonder, what's your understanding of how much enslaved people knew of John Brown in the 1850s? There's that's a very good question, and that's a very difficult question to answer. answer. There was a guy who, who worked in the library system, and I can't remember his name. I was just coming up in the elevator asking. He wrote a book called um, Cash for Blood. It was just like a, a it wasn't, it was like a, uh, just like a university press type of book. Mm -hmm. And when you read that book, and I just use it as an example, you learn so much more about slavery than you knew that you, than you knew existed. My guess is that there were more blacks who knew about John Brown than ever mentioned his name. Because if you mentioned his name, I mean, just the thought of mentioning reading to certain masters would get you whipped, beat, jailed, or sold to New Orleans. So there was an entire secret underground code of messages and and thought and signals that went along in, that happened in every community. My guess is that here in Baltimore and in the Washington, D.C. area, that he was known pretty well. Mm -hmm. uh, because they had numbers games here. They had dice games. They had, you know, they had the numbers. The numbers have been in Baltimore for going back to slavery. So people, people were connected. Um, and, uh, and more than one historian that I talked to, a live historian, historians, including um, the, uh, the guy who uh, runs Harper's Ferry now, are convinced that more blacks were with John Brown than were actually ever stated. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that's the case. And one of the theories, and that's what happens in the book, is one of the theories that there were a bunch of blacks that were supposed to be coming from Maryland that did come. But when, they got, when the train got to Harper's Ferry and the, the conductor who got off, who was, who was connected to John Brown, was supposed to wave the lantern to let the people on the train know that it was safe to, they screwed the signal up and they ended up shooting the guy. When he got shot, the blacks on the train got spooked. You know, pardon the pun. You know, they got afraid, <clears throat> and they cut out. And they and, cut. They, and there so were reports never, of people so they on were the train. they were never there seeing, for the fight. Yeah. Yeah, there were actual reports of people on the train seeing black people going in the other direction. Mm -hmm. So I think he was known more well known in this area than he would have been known in you know say and because this was this is relatively close to Harper's Ferry. Then he be then he was known say in New York or in Philadelphia. But you have to remember the Chatham Convention, which took place where he met with the militant leaders of, of African-American life. There were like 40 people there, including Harriet Tubman. Mm -hmm. So they all knew who John Brown was, and then they all spread out and went back to their respective communities. So I think he was more well-known than, than people realized. 
That said, I'm sure a lot of black folks wouldn't have gone, didn't want to go with it. If I was living at the time, I wouldn't have done it. Mm-hmm. You know, I just don't have the guts. I don't have the kahunas to go out there and get you know shot and you know. I just, I mean, you saw what happened. Yeah, to the, he was the asking a lot, yeah, and, it was, but, and it was amazing that you know so many people did actually uh, you know sign up. Well, I mean, Dangerfield Newby had seven seven kids and a wife that had written him a letter saying, "Please come, you know, please help us." And uh, and uh, and one of the African Americans who died, Louis Leary, both were connected to Oberlin. I see one of my Oberlin fellow alumni here, and um, both blacks that were with two two of the five blacks that were with John Brown were from Oberlin. One was a college student. The only college student with John Brown was an Oberlin student, Hmm. but his uncle was the husband of uh, Langston Hughes's grandmother. Oh, cool. And he died. Uh-huh. And it was said, and I believe Hughes wrote, that she had the blanket, the shawl, that they gave her after he was killed, and that she wrapped Langston Hughes in that shawl uh, mm. when he was a child. Mm. So there's a lot of connective tissue that, yeah. that, that took place. Yeah. The main character, the, the protagonist who's telling the story, uh, is one of the most fascinating characters I've ever encountered in literature. Um, Henry Shackelford, who they think is a, is Henrietta, and then John Brown names him Onion. I wonder if you could read a little bit uh, from the beginning of the book to sort of introduce us to, um, to the, the okay. person we come to know as Onion. All right. It's all the sponsors. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> I want to thank the people in the back. Okay. Um, deep in the jungle where the coconut grows. Oh, no, that's not it. That's the signifying <laughs> monkey. Sorry. <laughs> uh, this is, this is uh, from the beginning of the book. I was born a colored man, and don't you forget it. But I lived as a colored woman for 17 years. My pa was a full-blooded Negro out of Osawatomi in Kansas Territory, north of Fort Scott, near Lawrence. Pa was a barber by trade, though that never gave him full satisfaction. Preaching the gospel was his main line. Pa didn't have a regular church like the type that don't allow nothing but bingo on Wednesday nights and women sitting around making paper doll cutouts. He saved souls one at a time, cutting hair at Dutch Henry's Tavern, which was tucked at a crossing on the California Trail that runs along the Kaw River in South Kansas Territory. Pa ministered mostly to lowlifes, four flushes, slaveholders, and drunks who came along the Kansas Trail. He weren't a big man in size, but he dressed big. He favored a top hat, pants that drawed up around his ankles, high collar shirt, and heeled boots. Most of his clothing was junk he found, or items he stole off dead white folks on the prairie killed off from dropsy or aired out on account of some dispute or other. His shirt had bullet holes in it the size of quarters, His hat was two sizes too small. His trousers come from two different colored pairs sewn together in the middle where the arse met. His hair was nappy enough to strike a match on. Most women wouldn't go near him, including my own ma, who closed her eyes in death, bringing me to this life. She was said to be a gentle, high, yellow woman. Your ma was the only woman in the world, man enough to hear my holy thoughts, Pa boasted, for I am a man of many parts. Whatever them parts was, they didn't add up to much. For all full up and dressed to the nines, complete with boots and three-inch top hat, Pa only come out to about four feet, eight inches tall. And quite a bit of that was air. <laughs> Is that good? That's good. That's great. <laughs> it's just, 
the voices that you get, the, 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 the characters are so beautifully developed here and so vivid. Um, how do you uh, approach the challenge of getting into the voice of each character, the voice of Onion, the voice of John Brown, the voice of the various people that they encounter? Because you, you nail it. Well, you know, I love old black folks. I mean, I mean, not the ones here who need money, but the rest of them. <laughs> and no, I, I, you know, I've always been. My, all my mother's friends were old. Well, to me, when I was a kid, they were old black women and old black men in church. You know, like Deacon Willis and Deacon McNair. You know, who would pull out a bunch of pocket full of change and fish through it and hand you a nickel. You know, all these quarters they'd shove back in there. And I, and I never knew until I was a grown man that these were like the donut makers and the janitors and the, you know, the, the people. I mean, I didn't realize that I thought they were great people. And they were because of their attitude. But most of them were from the South. Although I grew up in New York, most of the people from New York were from the South. And so they all talked like that. And these were people that I loved. I remember when I was going to Oberlin, my godfather wrote me a letter. I met a guy named Moses Hogan who was super bad and so Moses and I were talking he was the first guy I met Moses was a pianist from New Orleans and he's a choir director and an arranger and um, I said I said man he said where are you from I said I'm from New York man I play a little jazz I said do you play jazz he said no no I said come on over here to, I played a little few chords and I said play a little something man let me see you play so he played some classical. I said man you can't play then he played he said well I know a little jazz and then he busted out with some of the most gorgeous low down I mean, he could really play. So I went to the phone. I called my mother, Collect, you know. And I said, I said, I, I want to go home, you know. I'm not going to make it. So she said, call your godfather. So I didn't call him. I wrote him a letter. He wrote me a letter back and, because he had never, you know, he had never gone beyond the eighth grade. And he, he wrote me a very simple letter. He said, I heard you're having trouble. I know you. And he spelled trouble T-R-U-B-L. And then he wrote, I know, I-N-O, you can do it. And that just... That just touched my heart, you know. And I said, well, you know what? You know, everybody that I know thinks I'm smart. And so I'm just going to stick with it. But I, but I loved, I loved those, those people. And I love those kind of characters. And so that kind of voice comes natural to me because I heard it so much as a child mm -hmm. and as a young man. And I'm always attracted to it, you know. Um, so the voice of Onion was in my head for a long time. I just couldn't find a character to put the voice in. And then when I, when I met John Brown in my imagination, I wanted to figure out how to tell this crazy, you know, fanatical but incredibly heroic white man's story in a way that was, that was attractive to me and to people. And then it just worked out. And when you involve actual historic characters. First of all, is Onion at all based on uh, a, a person in history? <clears throat> Not really. I mean, there are several accounts of Africa. Well, in, in real life, there was an African-American who did survive John Brown's, you know, who was with John Brown, who did survive. And he was treated, I mean, he made it, you know, and he was a printer. He, he's actually, in the book, he, he appears. His name is, I think his name is O.P. Mm -hmm. um, O.P. was a real person. And he really did. And he was a meek little man. He was the only man from Chatham, Canada, from the Chatham Convention, who actually sh who promised to show up and showed up. Mm -hmm. So in that regard, that that's that, you know, that's true. But I read several accounts of, of little black 
you know, little slave children's lives. And I, it was, Onion was an amalgam of, of a lot of a lot of characters. It was, it's hard to find um, stories about uh, slavery unless you read adults who talk about their. I mean, there are some people who, you know, Frederick Douglass and others. But it, it was hard for me to find. I had to kind of glean from the adult passages mm-hmm. of slaves who had talked about their childhood to figure Onion out. So. Speaking of Frederick Douglass, um, the, the way you treat him uh, in this book, and again, I don't want to give too much away for those of you who haven't had a chance to read the book yet, but um, uh, he's, he's quite a different character than we're used to uh, encountering. <laughs> well, I've, I've gotten some criticism about you know, my depiction of Frederick Douglass, but I just had so much fun with the moment. You know, the mo- I mean, I just was just so funny. You know, he's getting drunk, and then he's kind of liking this. Onion, by the way, for those of you who haven't read the book, is a black boy who he has to pretend to be a girl. He gets kidnapped at the very beginning by John Brown. His father gets killed in a shootout. John Brown snatches him, thinking he's a, a girl, and he figures this white man's crazy. He's just going to be quiet, and he just plays like a girl throughout the whole book. So when he meets and Frederick he's Douglass, he's twelve years old. Yeah, he's twelve years old. So when he meets Frederick Douglass, Frederick is feeling a little bit, you know, snippy. You know, he's getting fresh with him, and then they get drunk, and then you know, Frederick becomes Fred, and he starts getting country and all that, you know, all that proper talk kind of goes out the window, and he starts open the window, you know, come over here, and you know, so he starts to come on to Little Onion a little bit, and then Onion drinks him under the table, and you know, but look, I make fun of everybody in this book, you know, except for Harriet, except for Harriet Tubman, except for Harriet Tubman, yeah, Harriet Tubman was she was she's special, but. And she and Brown uh, knew each other. I mean, they encountered yeah, each other yeah, once in yeah. this book, but they did know each other. In real life, he yeah. called her the general. The general, yeah. Um, she was she was something else. Yeah. She was something else. And um, yeah, and and he um, he had tremendous respect for her. Yeah. Uh, you know, Harriet Tubman was one. She never told how she got free. She never. You know, Frederick Douglass became a statesman and a and he, and a kind of a politician. I mean, he was a brilliant man. He was a great writer, um, but. You know, he he could he would talk to people about elements that most white folks and black folks didn't really couldn't really put together. But Harriet Tubman never said anything. She was busy. She was busy. Yeah, she was. Yeah. Um, there's there's like a great insight or a great joke in virtually every paragraph of this book. I mean, it, it's it's something, and I wonder if it comes facilely to you. For example, um, uh, there's a scene here where John Brown is. Uh, encountering uh, federal troops who have captured uh, some of his sons. He has 22 children. Uh, right. It was right. a family business. Many of them were involved in the uh, in the, uh, the work that John Brown was doing. Um, and, he, and he tells a lie to this uh, corporal, uh, or the captain, whatever, to uh, uh, put into motion getting his sons back. And at the end of that scene, you say... Um, he was like everybody in a war. He believed God was on his side. Everybody got God on their side in a war. Problem is, God ain't telling nobody who he's for. <laughs> <laughs> well, and yeah. I did, I love that. And uh, <clears throat> does 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 writing come easily to you? Does that does that sort of flow out of the fingers, or, or is, that a, is um, that a lot of work? Well, you know, I mean, I mean, it's a lot of work, but. Um, I don't really like to talk about the heavy stuff. Like I find it, you know, talking. I just don't like to talk about, you know, 
I was just in Michigan, you know, like yesterday, and a day before yesterday, and I got back like early, and I was, you know, talking to someone. She said, "When I was young, I was Hispanic, and my parents did tell, you know, they had a book to, you know, I was under the clear side. We were clear, and and my cousins weren't clear. Oh, isn't that terrible? I mean, big deal. <laughs> you know, you eating good. You're all right. You got a professor job. What you worrying about? You know, it's okay. You're all right. You clear. Good. Good for you. <laughs> Clear on, clear, clear out. I don't want to hear it. I'm not interested in a lot of that real serious stuff because it just brings you down, and it, it ain't, it ain't most, a lot of it just ain't worth harping over unless you teach somebody how to be strong and, and love somebody. So, um, so being funny comes natural. I come from a funny family, you know. Um, you know, you, we were all big-headed and all funny. So. I just I like I like it in books. I mean, some of my previous books weren't that funny, um, but um, I, humor's hard to do. And also, if you want to move the reader, you make them laugh, and then when you when you want to make them cry, you don't have to do much. Right. right. Um, All of your books, starting with your memoir, uh, *Color of Water*, and then *Miracle at St. Anna* and *Song at Sung*, which is takes place at the same time period, the 1850s on the Eastern Shore. And then this book, Good Lord Bird, they all, of course, take up the the very complex topic of race, and and how we confront race, how we appreciate and deal with it. I wonder, are you? Do you think you're asking the same questions about race and bringing up the same issues in all of the books, or are, does each book bring up particular issues and particular dimensions of this very large and significant topic? That's a very difficult question to answer, and it's a very good one. I, I think probably, um, I think each book is an, a different avenue to to that op to try to open up. It's a different avenue to talk about the same thing, mm -hmm. so that it gives people space to, to have these this, these kinds of discussions. Because if they because the the discourse on race in this country is still so virulent and so unsophisticated that um, I mean it's gotten better. But it, it really hasn't reached the point where we actually like can figure stuff out. I mean, I mean the Obamacare thing is a great example. I mean the Republicans. I mean, and I have lots of Republican friends, and I I really don't care for politics at all. I, I think my view of poli politicians are like prison wardens. Like you really need them, but the desire to to be one ought to disqualify you for the job. You know. <laughs> so I don't really like. I'm not. I'm not in anyone, you know, any particular corner. But, you know, the fact is that the Republican spite and dislike of Obama is so great that they just that millions are still without health insurance because of just really rank, just rank nonsense. And that part is, is, <clears throat> and that part is damaging to us all. And in that regard, slavery made slavery slaves of us all. Because of our inability. I mean, look, Americans do it better than anybody else in the world when it comes to discourse on race, I think. Uh, because we've had a lot of practice and we're getting a lot better. But and the answer to your question is, I see every book as a different way of talking about it and while giving people room to say, oh, I made a mistake. Oh, I didn't understand. Oh, I see. Oh, that's how it is. As opposed to, you know, doing the 12 years a slave bit where you're just saying, you know, here it is and, you know, take your medicine. Mm -hmm. I mean, shh. I wouldn't pay that kind of money to see a movie like that. I just wouldn't. I mean, it's just, I mean, I'm, I'm, I read the book. I'm sure it's a great movie. 
be nice if they had some African-Americans instead of some Europeans playing some African-American people. Mm -hmm. but, um, but, you know, and, an, and a European director. I mean, I mean, I work on both sides of the world, you know, in publishing and in, in film, so I kind of see things a little differently. And, and, but my point is that I don't really think that, uh, that we have, that I think we're learning how to talk about these things. And I think it helps us to do that. What's missing? What 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 is missing from the discourse about it? How how could we write the conversation? R I G H T the conversation. Man, you're talking to a guy who used to go to steak and eggs when I was little, with, you know, run by the Nation of Islam, and I didn't care who was running it. I loved those steak and egg <laughs> things. I would tear them up. I used to eat three at a time if I had the money. So I'm not really sure. I think I, I think. I, th I think we have to learn how to forgive somebody for saying or doing the wrong thing. You know, we're not really good at that. I remember years ago, this, the, the head of Princeton University said something. I don't know. He said something bad. And he got, you know, he got on the news. And they had a big, like a big meeting about it. You know, all these people were at this meeting. And then this black guy stood up. He was like a janitor or something. He had janitor uniform and everything. And he said, well, I hear all this talk. He said, I just want you to know, I forgive you for what you said, you know. And they booed him. They hooted him, you know. And I said, now, why are they at the meeting if they're trying to work the daggone thing out? The guy said, he forg it's, all, it's forgiven. I mean, you're not going to change how this man thinks unless you make him like you or unless you, you know, show some love towards him. So, I mean, there's two ways to do it. You can kill somebody, and that, that works sometimes. <laughs> or you can say, you know, let's, let's do this together. Mm -hmm. um, ain't but two ways to do it. So... Um, I think we're just missing the kind of space that allows us to say, you know, like, maybe you're right and I'm wrong. I mean, you can't tell me Clarence Thomas is a proud black man, because he just ain't. Because if he was, he wouldn't be acting a fool the way he acts and does what he does. He just wouldn't. But on the other hand, you can't tell me that the guy who directed Precious is a proud black person neither. Because I know all kinds of black women. And they ain't all fat mamas who go around saying, you know, I'm going to kick your ass and take your... Who is that? Those are not real people. Those are stereotypical exaggerations that young people, young girls look at and decide they want to be like because they see it on television. So I don't I don't I don't think that so my point is I guess my point is that blacks are really sophisticated about smelling self-hate. They can smell it a mile away. White people are not. So Herman Cain can go and he can be, and they think he's a stand-up guy because he's a professional bullshitter. Mm -hmm. and, so, and, and, they think, and then you read about what the guy, he had all these girlfriends, whatever, I don't even remember what the guy, but I, you didn't have to, most black folks who are sophisticated understand this guy, you know, he's puffing. Now, white folks are finally getting to the, getting to the point where they can kind of see through that. And one of the nice things that's happening is white folks are starting to say, well, you know what, I smell something about him, it ain't right, I don't know what it is, mm -hmm. but it ain't yams and potatoes. And so it, it, the kind of discourse that is happening as a result, in part because of President Obama, has helped us and helped writers like me write about this, these kinds of things in ways that, that white readers accept and, and, and are illuminated by. And I think a book like that could happen 20 years ago. And I think in part it's partly because of the President of the United States now, because, you know, because he won and forced us to think about things we normally don't think about. You mentioned your work in film. You wrote the screenplay for Miracle at St. Anna. You co-wrote the screenplay with Spike Lee for uh, Red Hook Summer. When you write for film and you've got this other dimension of a visual image, 
Um, are you approaching that process of writing in a totally different way than when you're crafting a novel? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I see a friend of mine. He has a very fine television. I mean, television writing is, is and, and screenplay writing, um, you have to really go straight. You have to cut straight to the muscle. There's no room to, you know, a novel, you have you have room to take. Well, not as much as you had 20 years ago because mm -hmm. people now, you know, if you don't get to it, I mean, this is the internet age where, you know, right. but um, unless you're Toni Morrison or something like that, you, you better have a short runway before you put that plane in the air. Mm -hmm. But uh, television, you know, and, and movies, you have to just, you just have to get it up and you have to heave it into space, heave it into, into the air. You don't have a whole lot of warm-up room. So you're dealing with mostly muscle, you know, visual elements that with dialogue that pushes the story forward. Every, everything counts. You know, the flag, the, what, everything you see mm -hmm. has to nudge that story forward just a little bit more. And that, that's tricky. Um, and, uh, and it requires a lot of rewriting and, and it also requires the ability to say, you know, to a director, okay, I'll, I'll fix it the way you like it. Because a, a screenplay really is just a blueprint mm -hmm. for a director, you know. What's the importance of winning the National Book Award for you? And by the way, it's a huge deal, right? Just, yeah, well, I it's mean, you a know. huge deal, man. <laughs> well, you know, people laugh at your jokes all the time. When you say, you know, you say, hey, you're, just, you're so smart. No, I, I mean, I've I've never been, I've I've never kind of followed the crowd in my life. Not because I'm I'm like an outsider, but you know, I I I've never written for the New Yorker, or, you know, or I I wrote a piece recently for the New York Times, but I usually when I get offered to do that kind of stuff, I just don't do it. Not because I don't like those publications. I just I just not interested in the discourse of people who are too smart. So <laughs> I, I just stay away from it because I my I make my living by listening to other people. Now I'll come here and talk, but when I'm in the world, they don't know the world that I live in, my friends and my milieu, they don't know I'm James McBride, the, the writer. They just know I'm James McBride, the guy who lives over. And what you're doing now, and, and because that's, because I get my, I'm, they're pay, they're make, I make money from what they give me. Because mm -hmm. so, um, they end up in here. They end up in there. So I don't really, um, I never really hung out in the publishing circles. And I didn't really know that much about the National Book Award. Because I don't, I don't read reviews. I haven't read a review of myself since Spike Lee made me read a review of Miracle of St. Anna. I, I just don't read them at all because then you start believing the press. And, you know, they, they say, well, you know, he's... I, I'm not even smart enough to, like, you know, I, I just... I'm not even smart enough to, like, figure out what the kinds of things they say about me that I should be. <laughs> so uh, my point is that when... isn't going to do you any good. <laughs> yeah, well, my point is that when I won the National Book Award, I was shocked. I told my daughter, I was sitting there with my daughter, and they, they announced the five finalists, and I said to her, it was at this really fancy place, too. It was some kind of restaurant on Wall Street. Man, I mean, this place was, I mean, whew. and you had to put your coat on, you know, and you had to a little tux, and you had, they, they took your coat and all this. <laughs> so then the, then the, uh, so they were serving dessert. And then they started, they, they went through all like the nonfiction ones, the children's book, and, the poem, and then they saved the fiction one for the end, you know. And all these people, they said, well, here comes, you know, Bob Spitzenhauser who runs the business. And then, <laughs> and then they had, uh, they had Toni Morrison sitting next to one of the finalists, you know. And then they had like E.L. Doctor sitting next to the other finalists, you know. And I was sitting with my daughter, you know. So that's cool, you know, I was sitting there. 
And I had some designer was sitting at the table. She was a designer. She was she was a real what a jerk she was, man. She was just one of these Hollywood people, you know, who was just and she had her lover with her. She was a gay woman. You know, she's just so hip. I mean, give me a I mean, I don't care if she was gay, please. But you know, she just was a jerk, really. But anyways, and so she was asking me all these questions and I was trying to like just avoid. So anyway, I got to the dessert part and I said to, I said to my daughter, I said, Look, let's let's eat fast, we gotta go. Because I, I knew that I wasn't going to win. And then they called my name. And so I walked up there with my napkin in my hand. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And I just, you know, I gave a little speech and I, and I went. And afterwards, I took that, that $10,000. And I took that, that and it was really heavy trophy, you know. And uh, I put it in my car and I drove home and I, I ate me a tuna fish sandwich. And uh, I bought me a Ford, which I drove down here today. <laughs> well, that's another reason to be happy that you won the National Book Award, because it means you could come here today. So that, that's really <laughs> um, You uh, took a, a big break from writing for a while. For like seven or eight years, you were just playing music all the time. I mean, you are a really accomplished musician, composer. Um, you're the distinguished writer in residence at New York University. Um, how much playing and how much, how, how do you balance playing and writing and how much are you doing of each at the moment? I, right now I do about 20 concerts a year, you know, mostly at universities or libraries, stuff like that. Uh, and I, right now I'm playing gospel music. You know, I kind of do a thing with, well, I, we play gospel music, I read from the book and we play more gospel and I read from the book and we play more spiritual stuff. And that's cause, partly because I grew up in church and partly because I just love the music. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I did take a long break from writing when I left Washington Post, uh, and I, I worked with uh, Little Jimmy Scott for a couple of years, yep. and Anita Baker, and wrote a couple of tunes for Grover Washington, and wrote a song for Barney. You know, yeah. I wish I had written that "I Love You" song. You know, I would. <laughs> I would buy a couple of fours with that. <laughs> yeah, well, but it was uh, music has helped me. You know, I mean, you know, I, I love music. I grew up playing it. You know, and um, do you write music the same way you write? Literature? No, no. The structural approach is different. Um, <clears throat> literature is rooted in identity, really. Everything is, comes from character. And most character business is rooted in the character's search for identity or challenge to a character's identity. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so the, the books kind of grow out of that, you know. Uh, music is different. Music is, you know, it's in the air and I mean, right now I'm listening to a lot of Tito Puente just because I, you know, I'm just listening to a lot of Tito Puente, you know. And so there's a certain harmonic approach that he and his arrangers took to the music that's just completely different than writing. I, I never see writing and music as the same. I mean, people often say, you know, there's jazz in your <laughs> there's jazz in your music, you know. Okay, you know, you pay $25 for the book, you can say whatever you want, you know. But I don't, I mean, there's an improvisatory quality to writing in that characters sometimes start to take off and you know you have to stay with them mm -hmm. you know and you just have to and then they, they go in directions that you don't expect and you have to be trained enough and skilled enough to stay with them it's the same if you're, if you're playing and someone just starts going you know they just move somewhere else I mean if you can do it you do it yeah, yeah. but if you can't you, you won't mm -hmm. you know? I gotta ask you a question about this because I was this was frightening to me when I read this on your website. But you describe yourself, you, you wrote this as far as I know, you say, he's the worst dancer in the history of African Americans, bar none. 
going back to slave time and beyond. He should be legally, he's talking about himself here, he should be legally barred from dancing at any party he attends. He dances with one finger in the air like a white guy. Please, I mean, I'm a white guy, even I don't do that. Please, man, tell me, tell me that that's fiction, right? Tell me that that's fiction, that that doesn't actually happen. Because my whole view of the universe is going to change if this is true. <laughs> well, I've personally witnessed one or two white fellows dance with the finger in the air. But, you know, that might have been a, an overgeneralization. Over um, yeah, I'm not much of a dance, I'm sorry to say. You know, I can slow dance, you know. But um, some things I can't do. You know, I, I don't write lyrics very well. I mean, I've done it. You know, I've gotten paid for it. And I, and I don't dance well. And that was hard in high school. You know, high school, you know, it was the James Brown era. You had to step and play, and, you know. But it's all right. It worked out, you know. And speaking of James Brown, that's one of your next projects. Yes, that's my next book, book on James Brown. Um, and, uh, well, I hope it's as good as your moans are. Because, I, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite, it's been difficult. It's been difficult going, yeah. Nonfiction is a whole different world, mm -hmm. you know. Difficult because it's... Well, first of all... Um, with James Brown, you know, his estate is a mess. And, um, but at heart, at, at bottom, James Brown was a very, very good guy. Mm -hmm. He was a very, very sensitive man, deeply misunderstood, who did not know how to, in many ways, to be the man that he thought he was or that he wanted to be or that society expected him to be. So he had the weight of an entire people on his shoulders. He was a very important historical figure in yeah. American life. Sure. Um, but he was unprepared for it. And he never quite got worked up to the point. I'm talking about at his height from 68 to like 75. Uh, and then as he started his descent, you know, um, he basically outran the revolution. You know, he basically outlived the revolution that he was part of. And then he was kind of discarded and Michael Jackson became the king of pop. And, and his life fell apart in, in, in ways that were really quite sad. Um, so uh, also I think his music is misunderstood. I think people really do not understand how how crucial his musicians were to his sound. Mm -hmm. and Fred Wesley, Pee Wee Ellis, much more so than Maceo, actually. Maceo was, Maceo was a pioneer saxophone player, but it was Pee Wee Ellis, really, who created the James, who really wrote Cold Sweat and Say It Loud, and, and, uh, and Fred Wesley, who later carried that on. And not to mention you know, some of the musicians who people don't even know, like Jimmy Nolan, who created the guitar part, where you have to that was all Jimmy Nolan and, and Harlan Cheese, a fellow named Cheese, and Clyde Stubblefield who created the... And there's a lot of lying that goes along with the James Brown legend because people say they knew him, and he didn't want to be known. So people would say, I knew him, but they didn't really know him. Mm -hmm. and, and also some of the musicians lie, too. You know? I mean, musicians are just like everybody. They tell big whoppers, and so you have somebody like... You, know, you have one drummer going around New York saying he played with James Brown. And he did. He did a studio session or two with him. But, mm -hmm. you know, Clyde Stubblefield created the James Brown sound. Mm -hmm. And nobody knows. And he's, you know, he's, a lot of these guys died in relative anonymity. Mm -hmm. And that's really, for me, just, it's hard to witness it and then write about it in a way that's not going to be like, oh, you know, you have to just, you have to kind of present, you have to be objective enough to just mm -hmm. lay it out cleanly. Yeah. So that's been, that's been a problem. Well, let's uh, take a little time, uh, the time that we have uh, left, and uh, take some questions from the audience. Yes, sir. Yeah. 
everybody uh, hear that? Spike was cool. I mean, he he was a, Spike's a great director. Um, he was he was I mean he was very demanding. Um, and the the issue that uh, Spike and I had mostly with Miracle Saint Anna was the fact that the book has a kid who's invisible who talks to Miracle Saint Anna is about a black soldier who befriends a little Italian boy, and the Italian boy has an invisible friend that he talks to throughout the book. And Spike, one of the first things Spike said was, well, "We got to get rid of the invisible friend." And I said, we can't. We can't do that. And he said, I'm a filmmaker. How am I going to invis... You know, how can I... And it's film invisible. <laughs> right. So we actually, we had a lot of, you know, we had lots of some heated discussions about that. And so finally I wrote him a long letter. And I emailed it to him. And he wrote me back a one-line response. He said, you make a good argument, we'll keep the kid. And he figured out a way to keep the invisible kid. And if you see the movie and you see the solution that he had, that he came up with to keep the kid. It's really, really, it shows how talented he is. And he also, and he, he decided to keep the invisible kid without knowing how he was going to make him a presence in the film. Because I, I was blank. Every time I tried to come up with something that would work, I couldn't, I couldn't come up with something that would work, that would, would communicate. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Another question. Yes, in the back. Color water. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean that that book really has uh, been established in uh, schools and universities uh, around the world uh, as a sort of real seminal book on on race and and uh, as a, as an example of a really beautiful and successful memoir. Well, you know. Uh, I'm I'm glad that my mother lived long enough to see you know that book um, become successful. She had a friend here in, in Baltimore named Lily. We used to come down here and see, but I don't think Lily and Lily's mentioned in the Color of Water actually. Um, um, and, but I don't know if Lily lived long enough to see the book come out. But you know who knows? I mean, you know, you you write a book. Yeah. It's it's just it's in God's hands, you know. You happen to be the one with a handkerchief when God sneezes, and you know it's your lucky day, mm -hmm. you know. There. <laughs> so, there. yes, in the back. <clears throat> right. Mm -hmm. Right. Ralph Clayton. Yeah, that was an excellent book. I used that right. when I was writing. Um, um, uh, song yet sung. Yeah, yeah, great. A really well researched book about how slaves were sold, and uh, and you know, with real facts and figures. And and this is an important thing for those of you who are writers or, or would like to write. It doesn't really matter if eight people buy your book, because when I when I write my books, I go back to the books that only eight people have read. Because there's all there's so much in them. Well, the important thing is that the book get written, because you never know. Some it's truly you, someone somewhere will need that piece of knowledge, mm -hmm. and so I'm so glad that he wrote that. So book. you can find life in other. other That's places. right. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, 
Okay, that's a good that's a good question. The hardest thing for me to write was the first chapter. I rewrote that first chapter. I, I'm kidding you. I don't exaggerate. I said I rewrote it about 50 times. Wow. Because I, you know, I know someone's standing in the bookstore and they've got, you know, $25 they got to drop. Or, you know, when the when the paperback comes out, hopefully it'll be, you know, 18 or seven, whatever it is. But I, you know, and there's all these other good books, and you know, so you know you, you have to grab them. Yeah. yeah, you have not only have to grab them, but you have to hold them, and you have to set up a very complicated story. So that, so the first chapter was the hardest thing to write. The forward I also rewrote many, many different times because I didn't really want the forward to be in the book, even though the forward was only two pages. You know, the, the editor wanted to set up the story. I never read the forward of a book. I just go right to the, and so I just, I just read, I wrote the forward so that. If you wanted to read it, you could just you could just turn one page and you'd be gone, you'd be in it. <laughs> the easiest part to write was um, uh, the funny parts. The funny parts were easy to write. I probably, I mean, that Frederick Douglass chapter. I must say that was probably pretty easy to write because it was so because it got out of hand. And and it was just yes, became it fun, <laughs> you know. So that probably was the easiest chapter to write. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good question. Thank you. Yes. Well, that kind of trickeration is that? No, I mean, <clears throat> most of that dialect is stuff that I heard growing up. You know, uh, some of it's from narratives of slaves themselves, um, African Americans and Southerners, Southern whites. You know, who talk like that as well. Um, I grew up in a house where the, you know, where people talked like that. Um, and after you do it for a while, after you get the flow, it just, it just kind of starts to happen. Also, there are two languages in black America. I mean, not as much now as it used to, but it used to be. It was always, to, even now, I find myself falling back to you. You ain't got no money, so why are you here in the front? I mean, and then, then there's another language for like, you know, the, when you take the mask off and, 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 there's the language taking the mask off at home, and then there's a the language you put the mask on when you're talking to white folks or you know people, teachers or something like that. And I've always I've always found the language of African Americans is when the mask is off is just so funny. It's when it's not ignorant, you know. When it's ignorant, you know, like you know, I was listening to Jamie Foxx's um, comedy channel this morning on the way to the on the way here, and, and some of that stuff is not even funny, you know. It's just full of you know. Richard Pryor was funny. I mean, he was yeah. he was blue, and Lenny Bruce. These guys were funny, but now these cats they just cuss and carry on. It's not even funny. Mm -hmm. So, um, but the answer to your question is that once once I get into the flow of it, it comes pretty natural for me. And I also have lots of little tricks I use, <clears throat> which you know, which I, I'll be happy to share. I mean, if I'm right, if I'm trying to say, you know, um, I'm thirsty and I want to get out of here, um, I'm looking at this bottle. And I'll say, you know, I'm bottled up sitting here, you know. I, I got to, you know, I, I need something. I need a splash of goodness. I mean, because I, I'm, I'm just looking at this, and I just pull stuff from it. I do it all the time when I'm driving. And then, I, you know, I keep a notebook with me, you know. And I write down stuff all the time. Even when I'm mowing the grass, whatever I, whatever I do, I'm, you know, any time I'm about, doesn't matter what I'm doing, ladies, I got this notebook. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So careful what you say. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you could end up in a scene with Frederick Douglass in a book like this. <laughs>
All right, I guess we got time for one more. Yes, sir. Yes. Um, probably, probably both. I think people who know John Brown will say the book is fairly accurate. People who don't know him will be amused by him and learn about who he is because he was a, a very dynamic, extremely, extremely heroic figure in my, in my opinion. And the fact that he was very religious was always very attractive to me because I grew up in the church and I also have come to the understanding that a lot of the abolitionists were not just Quakers. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the belief is that the Quakers were there, but Methodists really had a lot to do with, with uh, the abolitionists, even on the Eastern Shore. And also um, uh, the Calvinists, you know, this whole business of pre preordained, uh, preordainment, you know. So I think for the just for the guy, you know, general man in the street, you know, that that's what the book is written for. Many people like you, you know, who have who like to read. And you do get a very full picture of the man by the end of the book. I mean, you 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 really have a very uh, what appears to be a very complete understanding of of him. Uh, and and you also make the point that his was not the only. Um, abolitionist uh, uh, movement or, or what? I mean, there were other. Uh, yeah. and there's a couple of examples of. Uh, there's one Jim chapter Lang. in here called Insurrection, and there's this amazing character, Sabonia. Sabonia, yeah. Uh, yeah. Was she an historical character? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's based on a real person. Yeah, the whole business. Of, there were lots of slave insurrections that you never heard about. Yeah. I mean, it, and uh, and sh and hers was one of those stories where you know where, where they where they. They, they found out who the leader was. They brought the leader in. They said, you know, tell us who you're with. The leader refuses, and then they hang her. And, then, and, and as she's getting hung, her, you know, the, the scaffold, there was some problem. And so she, she kind of started to, her body involuntarily tried to, you know, reach for the ledge, the landing. And her sister held her out like that so she would just die. And the sister said to the others who were waiting to be hung, you will die like her now. Mm -hmm. and, and, and they did. And then after she was hung, after all these blacks slaves were hung, it caused an enormous amount of dissension amongst white folks. Not just because of the brutality of it, but because some said, well, you know, that was my slave. He didn't do anything. That was, he belonged to me. That's $1,200 there, and he was a good guy, and now he's dead. Yeah. And then the, the whole business of, why are we doing this in the first And my children saw this. And, and so it was that kind of brutality eventually started to peak around between 1850 and 1859 when people just couldn't stand it anymore, along with the pressure from East Coast, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, James McBride, we are so delighted to have you here. Thank you so much. James McBride, read the book, The Good Lord Bird. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, James. No, knowing that James has to turn around and drive three hours home, let's let him uh, leave Baltimore happy by got, getting a copy of his book signed. So we're going to escort James uh, downstairs to the Barnes & Noble area. Uh, where he will be glad to sign books and continue conversations with you. Thank you, Tom Hall, James McBride.